I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, the measles outbreak. Hundreds of cases have been counted around the country this year, the most since 2000. Why is it happening? Why are some people still avoiding vaccines? And why has California seen relatively low numbers of cases this year? Health reporter Aaron Alday joins us to talk about measles, vaccines, and how myths spread. All that after the break. We'll be right back. Erin Alday is a health reporter at The Chronicle. She's been at the paper for 13 years and has done groundbreaking work on the AIDS crisis, and she's also ventured into reporting on measles. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Erin, why today are we talking about measles? Well, right now in the United States, we're looking at what is basically the second largest number of cases of measles in uh, the past 20 years, basically, um, since uh, since measles was actually declared officially eliminated in the United States. Um, we so far have 465 cases um, just this year, just in the first few months of this year. Um, I think the last previous high was in the 600 for an entire year a couple years ago. Um, so we're seeing these outbreaks crop up all over the country, um, primarily in New York um, and unvaccinated communities there and um, in Washington and a few other states. And in California, are we seeing uh, high numbers or are we a little better off? We are actually much better off. Um, we're definitely seeing a small outbreaks um, within uh, pockets of California, but our numbers are much lower. And we've had a couple of warnings come across recently in the Bay Area for people to watch out. What, what do those look like? Right. So the way that public health handles measles now is if you get a single case, because measles is so infectious, it's so easy to spread. If you get a single case, um, public health just clamps down on it and immediately puts out an advisory um, and just starts telling people where where these people might have been in public, where people might have been exposed. So you tend to get a lot of media attention, a lot of sort of public response to even one case. And so it can kind of make it seem like it's this massive thing that's happening when, in fact, that's how public health controls an outbreak. But we've noticed and we've we've talked about this in the newsroom about the high interest in these these stories. Why is that? Why are people so interested even in a story about people might have been exposed at one restaurant in Livermore, as we reported? I think there's a few reasons. I think partly measles, because it doesn't really exist in large numbers in this country anymore. It's a little exotic. So it can sound um, just kind of fascinating. Most of us, I mean, even doctors in this day and age, most doctors have never seen a case of measles. Um, certainly most, you know, individuals don't know anything about measles, don't know what it looks like, don't really, it, it feels like something just really unusual. Um, and so I think that grabs a lot of attention. But then there's the fact that so much of this revolves around the sort of vaccination not debate, but con conversation around um, people who don't want to vaccinate their children, people who um, spread misinformation about vaccinations. And I think people, when you have cases of measles or any vaccine preventable disease spread out there, that just kind of makes people's ears perk up. They take sure. an interest in that. Sure. Well, before we get to all of that, uh, can we sort of take a look back? What is the history of measles in the United States? Uh, when was it eradicated? Sure. So uh, basically for, you know, most of the, the United States um, up until about the 60s, measles was everywhere. Um, pretty much everybody would get it. We would see about half a million cases every single year. Um, about 500 people would die from hmm. measles every year in the United States, most of them children because they were most vulnerable. 
And that was just sort of the way things were. When the vaccine came around, um, which was in the 60s, and by like the mid to late 60s, it was pretty widespread, it had an immediate effect on, on measles rates. So we, within a few years, had dropped to, you know, the tens of thousands um, and then quickly just to the thousands. And by the year 2000, it was declared eliminated in the United States. And what that means, because obviously measles is still here, you can see by these outbreaks, eliminated means that we don't get native cases. So basically anybody who becomes, when you get an outbreak of measles in the United States now, it starts from another country. Mm. So what happens is somebody from another country gets infected in that country, brings measles back here, and that sets off an outbreak. Um, and that's and the so when only... they're traveling, when they're on an, on an airplane, is there no way to know that they are contracting measles? Right, because it takes a few days okay. uh, to set in. So people can be infected with it um, for several days before they actually show symptoms. So there's really no way to prevent that. Um, yeah, so people come up and uh, they get sick in another country, come here, set it off. And that's the only time we ever see outbreaks in the United States since 2000. Um, But they want to keep it that way. And that's why it's so important to have a vaccinated population so that you don't ever get to low enough vaccination rates that we can get kind of our own native outbreaks that spring from our own population. Hmm. Well, in 1998, something really important happens. What is that? So 1998, was when a British doctor um, who has since lost his medical license published a report um, suggesting a connection between the measles vaccine um, and autism. And at the time, it didn't necessarily get a lot of attention, but it's sort of that basically triggered the anti the modern act anti-vaccination movement. Um, it just got people freaked out. It got them thinking. Um, and it took a few years for that to kind of take off. But by the mid-2000s, vaccination rates in this country and also in, in Europe and England and elsewhere had really started to drop pretty dramatically. Um, and really, everybody kind of puts that back on that report from 1998. And it's it's interesting because that report, that one report, was basically a case study of like a handful of kids um, who had autism. And this doctor was since found, I mean, they people have investigated this, found that he essentially made up data. Mm. Um, and it was just a completely, I mean, who knows what he was thinking, but it was just a made up study. And yet it set off this cascade of anti-vaccination campaigns um, that lingers to this day. And now people will cite other reasons for why vaccines are dangerous. And all of them have been you know, proven to be inaccurate or proven to be wrong, but it just, it it persists to this day and age. Um, And to the point where to have measles protection, to to keep it at a protective level, vaccination level, and keep measles from spreading in a community, you need to have about 92% of your community protected. And in California anyway, by the mid-2000s, that had dropped to below 92%. Hmm. down to about 90%. So below the threshold. Below the threshold, exactly. And in some places, like Marin County, it had dropped far below, like into the 80s. Um, and some schools, you would have almost no kids vaccinated. So entire schools would be completely vulnerable to something like measles. Um, and again, all that was tied back to that one study, which was by, I think, 2011 or so, you know, completely discredited, completely debunked. Um, again, the doctor lost his medical license. It's been very thoroughly proven to be wrong, and yet we just can't shake that legacy. You know, I've obviously talked with a lot of doctors about um, vaccine safety over the years. Um, and here um, we have an interview of me with, uh, or I talked to Dr. Randy Bergen, 
um, a pediatrician with Kaiser, about what he tells parents who are hesitant to vaccinate their children about just how safe they are and when he talks to them about that autism connection. My name is Dr. Randy Bergen, and I'm a general pediatrician and a pediatric infectious disease specialist. I've uh, worked at uh, Kaiser Permanente uh, as uh, part of the Walnut Creek Medical Center for close to 30 years now. I'm very confident as a parent and as a pediatrician that uh, I am offering the best possible care to my patients, and I've offered the best possible medical care to my own children uh, by offering them vaccines. Uh, I have no doubts specifically about the measles vaccine. I think that over the last couple decades, there, there have been uh, so much misinformation that, that was primarily started by, by um, research that, that was found to be uh, you know, basically very disreputable and, and uh, that kind of snowballed uh, from there. Uh, beyond measles, I, I think that other vaccines are, are equally safe. I, I think that, that the anti-vaccine rhetoric is something that we just kind of go from one thing to another. Before we go any further, Aaron, can you give us just a brief description of, of what measles is, how it spreads, and what people need to know? Sure. So measles is caused by a virus. Um, and it basically, for most people, it honestly causes fairly mild to moderate symptoms, a fever, cough, uh, runny nose, sore throat, your kind of typical, you know, flu and cold symptoms. But the distinctive feature is a rash, um, which is what most people kind of are familiar with from, from photos. And again, most of us have never seen it, have never experienced this, but we kind of know what measles look like, which is a dis distinctive red rash that can be on the face, on the arms and limbs. Um, it can be fatal. Um, about, I think, one in two cases in 100 um, will, uh, people will die. Um, people are pretty frequently hospitalized. Um, kids can end up in the ICU. There can be long-term effects. Um, again, not for the majority of people, but, but here and there. And so it's mostly if you get to large numbers that you have this potential of people being really harmed by it. And, of course, people who have weakened immune systems who are not able to get vaccinated um, making them especially vulnerable to measles, they're also the ones who are more likely to have bad outcomes if they do get sick. And if you if you are vaccinated or if your child is vaccinated, is there any chance of getting it? There is. Um, it's The vaccine is about 97 to 98% effective. That's if you get two doses of it. If you get just one, I think it's about 90 to 92% effective. Um, so what you see when we get outbreaks, any given outbreak, you'll see a couple of people that that were vaccinated and got sick anyway. Generally speaking, if they get sick anyway, they have a mild illness. Um, they tend to have milder symptoms and, and do have a better outcome. So most of the people that are getting sick in places like New York, those are unvaccinated people. For sure. Um, and that's why you've seen it in places like New York spreading in, I think in New York, it's really been hitting the Orthodox Jewish community pretty mm -hmm. hard because they have very low vaccination rates. Um, and so it's just spreading through schools and communities that are like crazy. Um, and to the point where New York is now requiring mandating vaccination, um, families are being fined if they don't vaccinate. The modern conversation about measles seems to trace back to, of all places, Disneyland. Um, is, that, is that right? What, what happened? Right. So in California, by the mid-2010s, um, we had gotten to this kind of steady 90% level of vaccination. And, and a lot of folks look back now and say that we were essentially like, 
like ready to combust. It's sort of like if you imagine like dry foliage and, and, and whatnot, you know, ready to be kind of lit by a match and spark a fire. It was like that in California. We had this sort of population of unvaccinated people and we just needed a match to light it. Mm. And so what happened in late 2014, December 2014, was we had a visitor. We had somebody who contracted measles in another country, they believe the Philippines, who went to Disneyland. And Disneyland is a great place to light a match if you want to get a lot of people exposed. And so before long, I mean, within like a month or two, we just had cases just spiraling out of that um, to the point that California ended up having its largest outbreak in, I think, 20 years um, based off of that one exposure at Disneyland. I either Disneyland or the other Disney park down in Southern California. It's sort of a, a perfect vessel for yes. delivering disease from person to person. Because you have so many people in the tight space, and it was over the holidays when Disneyland is especially busy, and you have all these kids. I mean, all these mm-hmm. little these kids who are especially vulnerable. Um, and, and it's visitors from, from other places who then leave and go all go back home. So in California... You had all these cases kind of come up in Southern California, but then very quickly cases all over the rest of California. And it did show up in other states, but it was primarily, you know, contained to California. But we ended up with, um, I think, 165 cases that were positively, you know, attached to that specific outbreak. There were probably many more that were just never officially um, attached to it. But it really blew up. Um, all likely traced to one person. Yeah, they never actually identified that person. Um, they were never kind of able to do that that level of tracing it was just too hard, I think. But they, they confidently said that that was, it came out of Disneyland. I think they found enough secondary cases. Um, but that one was so outrageous and it really kicked off a lot of anger, a lot of paranoia. Um, actually, not paranoia. I mean, people were really legitimately worried about this. And what happened in the Bay Area was you had a lot of schools that had very low vaccinated populations of school children, and there were schools that closed. There were schools that were demanding that unvaccinated children stay home. Um, we never mandated vaccination in that moment. Like, there was never, you know, calls. To, kids had to get come in and get shots right away. But there was a very, um, very strong kind of pushback on the situation. A lot of people speaking out, a lot of anger. And by that summer, there had been legislation announced that essentially um, made it much basically required that kids get vaccinated in a way that we never had in uh, in California. Um, so it took the Disneyland incident to really push push the legislation. Right. So so before then California had this policy with its with its vaccination laws where parents could essentially opt out of vaccinating their kids for any reason. They didn't need to give a reason. It was called a personal exemption. Hmm. Um, and that had been a number that had really been increasing in recent years. And this law which Took, which passed in 2015 and took effect in January 2016, it did away completely with this personal exemption. So suddenly parents just couldn't opt out. They had to get a medical exemption if they didn't want their kid vaccinated. Um, and immediately the, our rights in California began climbing again. It mm. was like within a year. And do we know what they climbed to? You yeah. said 92 was sort of the key number. Right. And within a year, it was definitely over that threshold. And I believe now it's in the like 95 to 96% range for the state. So if it was 95, 96%, what happened to the other 4%? Right. So there are obviously still um, children who are not being vaccinated in this country. Um, And what we saw when the state did away with personal belief exemptions was suddenly out of nowhere, a lot more kids were getting medical exemptions um, to the point of in some communities, it was like a tenfold increase. Um, 
I think, uh, like Marin County went from six kids had medical exemptions in 2014 to almost 70 kids had medical exemptions in 2017. So obviously we didn't have a whole bunch of kids suddenly getting sick and needing medical exemptions. Um, clearly there was something going on and, and it was parents who were seeking out doctors who would give them medical exemptions, um, you know, presumably for reasons that weren't quite kosher. Um, and so that was that became apparent immediately. The the medical exemption rate just climbed um, across the state. I think I think fourfold across the state the state um, pretty much overnight. Um, and it's a small number of kids. It's you know a few hundred statewide. But that's sort of our our last kind of stronghold of anti vaccination families um, that the state is now trying to go after. And there is legislation on the table now that would require the state public health department to approve all medical exemptions. So if a family goes to some doctor a hundred miles away and pays him a hundred bucks to give them a medical exemption, now these families will have to go to the state and have the state say, yeah, that that looks real or say, no, this is obviously fake. And the, the state presumably would see if a lot of the recommendations are all coming from the same doctor's office, for example. Right. Yeah. So what some initial studies have found is that there are just a handful of doctors in the state that are providing these medical exemptions. So people seek them out. Um, you know, they find them on Facebook. They find them word of mouth. Um, you know, so there are a lot of conversations within the anti-vaccination community about how parents can kind of work around the system so their kids can keep going to school. Let's talk about you as a as a health reporter for the Chronicle. Um, how do you deal with an issue where on one side you have a lot of people who feel very strongly that their side is not being heard? They still believe that their vaccines could be dangerous to their children. How do you how do you weigh that? It's um, it gets complicated for sure. Um, you know, there's there's the you're in the risk of doing a falling into a false equivalency where you you don't want to give both sides equal treatment in a case where there's one side that's that's right, that's scientifically accurate, that is just, this is just the truth, is that vaccines are safe and they're important for public health and people should get vaccinated. Um, and so I don't, with every single story, want to include, you know, an anti-vaccination parent saying, you know, my kid got autism from a measles vaccine um, because that's just that's just not true. And it's just, um, it, it feeds flames. It doesn't, you know, that's not my job. I, I'm not going to spread misinformation in that way. At the same time, I have talked to many of these parents and I will say that most of them, they are legitimately fearful, um, you know, and they have read a lot, you know, they've read studies and yeah, it's maybe studies that have been fed to them through sort of a funnel of misinformation that have been passed on. But you know, they read scientifically. They are often written by people who have medical credentials who, who you know, just for whatever reason, they've fallen into this too. Um, and I, it's really hard. And I would never argue with a parent who says, you know, my kid got a measles vaccine and he had a seizure that night and he hasn't been the same since. I wasn't there. Um, I, I believe a parent who has an experience like that and I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Um, so, you know, from time to time, if I'm doing bigger pieces, I will interview those parents and I will let them tell their story. And all I can do in the midst of that is say, these studies have been proven false, that this is misinformation, it's not true, and then let them tell their story in that context. And um, are they upset at you? I mean, they know where you're coming from. They know your, your approach. Yeah, I'm always very upfront with them. I always tell them, you know, that this is not a 
you know, balanced in that I'm going to, you know, weigh their opinion, you know, give it as much kind of power as, as the science. And I tell them, them where I'm at. Um, and they understand that. Um, a lot of them don't really appreciate it after the fact. I definitely hear from parents that say, you know, that wasn't fair or not so much that that wasn't fair, but they'll say, you know, that I'm just sort of believing in big pharma, that I'm part of the system, that I'm part of the problem. So I definitely get that reaction, but that's that's to be expected. And what do they say about measles? I mean, if there's a risk of contracting it, do they also sort of have an opinion about how bad it is to to contract it? No. In fact, that's one of the problems. It's a, it's a little bit of a more recent phenomenon that's coming up where um, there's this spread of information that measles is, is not bad at all, that it's very mild. And part of this anti-vaccination campaign is actually arguing that it's it's better for people to get so-called natural measles, um, to get it kind of on their own terms than to get the vaccine, that they're better off kind of getting this sort of natural immunity and it's more protective or something. I don't know. It's part of this, this kind of campaign that's out there now um, where people actively want to, their kids to get measles. Wow. Are you immune after getting it once? Yeah. Before I let you go, Aaron, I wanted to ask you about the Internet. Um, obviously, a lot of this information uh, travels through social channels like Facebook. Has there been an effort to get at that and get at some of the bad information that spreads about vaccines? Yes, uh, for sure. In fact, that is sort of the probably the the, the place that people are targeting the most now. As, um, that's where all this mis- misinformation is being spread, is especially on social media. I talked to one doctor recently who said he was looking at a a pro-vaccination video on YouTube and he's just watching it. it was something that a friend had made and the the next video that popped up like within you know the autoplay was this anti-vax video that he wasn't expecting it just kind of showed up because that's how kind of the metrics worked out um, and so there's definitely been efforts to really stop that and in fact um, a lot of these um, companies are in fact stepping up Facebook has recently announced that it is no longer allowing advertising by anti-vaccination groups on Facebook um, they're sort of redoing their algorithms so that if you like search for vaccines, um, anti-vax groups are less likely to come up. Um, I think there was Pinterest is, or, or maybe not be Pinterest, but some other social media outlet is disabling. You can't actually search for anti-vax. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely been efforts to tamp that, da- that down because they found that a lot of these groups were really targeting like young mothers. They were targeting women of an age when they were going to start having a family. So they were really kind of trying to get out there and get this messaging out there, you know, before people were even thinking about it. Um, so that's kind of your your stronghold now that people are really um, zeroing in on. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Aaron Alday for joining us. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.